0: One of our deepest needs as human beings is the need to belong, the need to be accepted, to have a home and find a place within a community. And many in our communities are very, very alone. Perhaps that's your experience. Perhaps that's your reality today, and it's a painful one, and it's a hard one.
1: Welcome to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths. And uh, Jonathan, perhaps? Well, I think that there's a lot of perhaps out there. I think there are many people listening today. Who could identify with that, who would say, I do feel alone, and that is painful. Uh, What hope do we have for those who just feel absolutely alone today?
0: Well, the amazing thing about the Gospel is that it tells us that God Himself has come to us in the person of His Son, and He has done that so that we can be brought near to Him, so that the barrier of of our sin, our wrongdoing, can be removed, so we can have relationship with God. But actually, as we come into relationship with God, he brings us into relationship with other people who have been saved through Jesus as well, and we we come into community.
1: And we really were created for community, weren't we? We're not supposed to do this Christian life in isolation.
0: Absolutely not. And when we find ourselves in seasons of life or in situations in life when we're isolated, I think we all know the pain of that, the difficulty of that. And so the great joy of the gospel of the Christian life is being brought into this new community, even a family with people who know God through Jesus Christ, and that is, it is a joy.
1: It is a joy, and we're going to continue to look at that today. From the book of Ephesians, we are in chapter 2, so if you can, grab a Bible and join us there as we continue a message, One in Christ. Here's Jonathan.
0: At the heart of Jesus' work is the achievement of breaking down barriers, barriers between formerly divided people, but more significant even than that, breaking down the barrier between sinful humanity and a holy God. Jesus' purpose, verse 16, was in this one body, this new humanity, to reconcile both of them, both Jew and Gentile, to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. At the cross of Calvary, Jesus pays the price of our rebellion against God Himself, against God the Judge. He bears our guilt, and He makes us acceptable to the Father. And Jesus does that for us out of His sheer grace, so that as we stand before the cross of Christ, not one of us, none of us can claim any special or superior access to God. The cross, it it levels the playing field. It means that we all approach on level ground. And as it levels the playing field, it, it does away with our hostilities. When I see the weight of my own guilt that Jesus willingly bore in my place, I realize that whatever I might have against you and whatever you might have against me, well, it's quite out of place to hold on to that now, if I really understand What Jesus has done. Hostility melts away. And the particular laws that separated Jew and Gentile, they're they're set aside at the cross, as we've discussed already. And so, so now both groups, Jew and Gentile and many other groups beside, have access to God on the same basis, by the same grace, through the same sacrifice. That's why Paul can speak of Jesus being our peace and of Jesus proclaiming peace. In our world of conflict, we know that true peace is very, very elusive indeed. We think back to 1938 and British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain's return from his trip to Germany, uh, where he signed a peace accord with Hitler, and he announces to Britain and to the world that he has achieved peace in our time, 1938. Now think about what happens in 1939, the greatest conflict the world has ever seen, so much optimism but so naive. Peace in this world is often elusive. It rarely endures, but Jesus has achieved something that no politician or army could ever achieve. He came, verse 17, and preached peace to you who were far away, Gentiles who had no claim on God, and peace to those who were near, to Jews who could approach God at the temple, but still needed to have their sin ultimately dealt with by that perfect sacrifice, for through Him we both have access to the Father by the Spirit." It's a thrilling thing to see barriers come down. Those who remember the Berlin Wall coming down will remember the thrill and the excitement of those days, all the optimism that was wrapped up in the symbolism of it, the hope of peace, the prospect of families and friends reunited. The prospect of nations reconciled. There's been talk in recent days of the military divisions between North and South Korea being removed. Who knows if that's going to come to pass? But just imagine what it could mean after decades of hostility and mistrust. It's a thrilling idea, if only vague. But now consider the achievement of the cross. At Calvary, the great barrier between humanity and God is removed. It is broken down. It is destroyed. That barrier that had been in place ever since God expelled Adam and Eve from the garden and set the cherubim with flashing swords in the way that they might not return. As God's salvation plan took shape, the temple gave very limited opportunity for the high priest to come into the presence of God, so long as he came in with the appropriate sacrifice and in the appropriate way. There was an opportunity there to come near, but it was limited, it was constrained, it was partial, and it was very definitely only for the Israelites. But now, through Jesus, because of Calvary, access is open, the great barrier removed, and with that barrier gone, the barrier between Jew and Gentile disappears as well. It's not about getting close to the sanctuary of the temple. It's not about that geography anymore. And so that barrier in the outer court, well, it's irrelevant. We all have access by the Spirit, says Paul. At the heart of the gospel is a message of liberation and of freedom, a message that barriers have been broken down by Jesus, that men and women, boys and girls of every background and every culture and every language and every tribe of every history can come near to God, may have peace with God, may have access to the Father. Now, that's the message of liberation and of access that's at the heart of the gospel, And we know that, I trust we believe it, but nonetheless we remain very, very good at putting up fresh barriers all the time. It comes naturally to us, we find that walls bring us comfort, and distinctions and divisions give us a sense of identity and one that often fuels our pride. And so we find ways of creating divisions within the new undivided family of God, the new humanity. Perhaps we don't think very much about a Jew-Gentile division in our particular context here. That's maybe not what's on our mind primarily. But for some, perhaps, the great divisions are the divisions between people who grew up within the church, those who grew up within this church maybe, or within a particular kind of church, and and then those who who didn't. Divisions between those who belong to particular Christian clans or families or networks and, and, and those who don't. Divisions between those who were discipled in the faith in a particular way, maybe back in their college days, their their student days, and, and then those who didn't have that kind of training and experience. Divisions between those who serve in the church in particular ways, maybe visible ways, and those who don't. Divisions between those who raise or educate their children in particular ways, and between those who do it another way, and many, many more besides. We could go on and on, couldn't we? We're good at creating and multiplying divisions, and we find it so easy to look down upon those who fall on the wrong side of our particular wall. And because of that tendency and because of that reality, which is in all our hearts, it's good and wholesome for us to hear regularly the truth of verse 18. For through Him, we both, we all who belong to Jesus, have access to the Father by the Spirit." all of us here, each one of us without exception, if we belong to Jesus, if we're trusting in Him, we have access to the Father by the Spirit on an equal footing. There's no such thing as a first-class or a second-class Christian. I hope we know that. I hope we believe it. I hope we know that if we're those who are particularly inclined to put up barriers, I hope we know that if we're those who are particularly inclined to look on ourselves as outsiders, if you're the kind of person who sees yourself as a natural outsider. I hope you truly believe that you belong in and through Jesus, that there's now no barrier for any one of us to come near to the Father. I was speaking with a member of the church family here just recently, and she was sharing that when her family first came, they found it quite hard to settle in because the the church was so close-knit in many ways, it could feel as though a newcomer was actually an outsider for a long time. It felt just a little challenging to break in. Now that's not surprising on one level, and it reflects some good realities about a, a warm community, but it's not right either. It's not how things should be. And I think we all recognize that a church should be a place where outsiders who trust in Jesus become insiders, part of the family very quickly. We welcome others among us because Jesus has broken down every barrier. We want to live out that gospel truth. We need to live out that gospel truth. And so one of the things we want to work on together and we need to invest on is ensuring that we display and model and live out that reality in every way we can. In making outsiders like us insiders, in welcoming us in and drawing us close, the Lord Jesus, he's broken down barriers. And next, he's building up his temple. He's building his spiritual house.
1: You're listening to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths and a message entitled One in Christ. It's part of a larger series called The Unsearchable Riches of Christ and we've been looking at how Jesus has broken down barriers. When we come back in just a few moments we're going to continue this message as we see how Jesus builds his temple, his spiritual house, so I hope you'll stay with us. You know, I hope you're benefiting from listening to Jonathan's teaching if you are, we'd love to hear about it. And I'd ask you to consider giving a gift because we're able to keep this teaching on this station each day because of your generosity. But as you give a gift this month, we want to say thank you by sending you a book written by Jonathan called Living by Faith in Turbulent Times. It's just our way of saying thanks for your support. You can find out more about this or give your gift online when you visit our website, encounterthetruth.org. That's encounterthetruth.org. All right, if you're just joining us, we're in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, so grab a Bible and open it there. Let's get back to the message. Here is Jonathan.
0: There's something quite exciting about a genuinely great building project. We go through seasons in national life every few decades where governments undertake great projects and build grand structures. We had a spurt of that maybe 30 years ago here in Ottawa when some of the great public buildings were built. But I gather that the really big projects in the world right now that are being undertaken are found in the Middle East. If you want to see a really big building project in the works, go there. The al Maktoum Airport in Dubai opens its grand expansion this year. It now covers a staggering 21 square miles, the airport building. It's almost inconceivable and more building is planned for the coming years. The aim is, I gather, to make the airport capable of handling 220 million passengers a year. I can barely conceptualize that. The project is so grand and so big. There's something exciting about seeing, and if you have opportunity, taking part in a very great project like that. Well, here in this final paragraph of the chapter, Paul tells us that the Lord Jesus is engaged in a very, very great, very, very grand building project of his own. And more than that, Paul wants us to see that we have an integral part to play in God's great plan. Paul's already told us that in Christ, we're part of a new humanity, and we have a new identity. And now he draws out that reality in a few different ways. He tells us that we're fellow citizens, verse 19, part of his people. We're we're members of his household. And now in verse 20, he moves beyond the idea of a household to the idea of the house, the structure itself. The building is, verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In this spiritual building that Jesus is building, well, he himself is that stone at the corner. And at the foundation of the building, it's got an inscription on it and a date and a dedication. He's the stone on which the building rests. In him, verse 21, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord's. As Paul talks here about a temple, two key buildings would loom very large in the imagination of his hearers. The Gentiles in Ephesus lived in the shadow of the great temple of the goddess Artemis, which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was a grand temple of soaring white pillars and classical design, a truly monumental structure for which their city was famous. But these Gentiles at Ephesus, they knew as well through their growing knowledge of the scriptures that the temple in Jerusalem was the true historic meeting place between God and His people. And the temple in Jerusalem was a very, very grand structure. The concept of the temple has a special and a central place, of course, in the story of the Bible. It was the place where God met with His people, as we've thought about already He made his presence available in the inner sanctuary of the temple in the Old Testament, and that was where sinners through the priest and through the sacrifice could have access to God and to his forgiveness. As we move into the New Testament, it's very interesting that Jesus speaks of his own body as the Lord's temple. You may remember, you don't need to turn to it, but you may remember that in John chapter 2, when Jesus really enacts a parable of judgment against the temple in Jerusalem, he clears the money changers out of the place. He says to the Jews, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up again. And the Jews replied to that, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and yet you're going to raise it in three days. And then John adds this comment, the temple he had spoken of was his body. As Jesus comes to earth and takes on flesh and lives among us, he is now himself the meeting place between God and man. He is the place where we have access. His body is the temple. But the progression of this idea and this theme as it finds fulfillment in the person of Jesus, it goes a wonderful step further here in Ephesians 2. Now we, you and I together, are part of the holy temple of God. If we belong to Jesus, we are united to him, we are filled with his spirit, we are part of his body, and so we are now part of the structure. Verse 21 again, "'In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord, and in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit.'" We live in an age, I think, which is unusual by historical standards for its focus on the individual, on individual identity, on individual freedom, unusual for its focus on me. It's no mistake, I think, that ours is the age of the iPhone, the iWatch, the iPad. All these devices cater personally to my needs and they are fundamentally about me. And so Apple was on to something, I think, when they chose that approach and chose to name these era-defining products after the consumer. Other societies at other times, other societies in the world even today in different places focus much more on a collective identity, who we are as members of families and tribes and communities and groups. In a sense, that's actually been the historical norm, and we are the anomaly today. But here in our context in North America, the community is often simply the forum in which we pursue our own personal and individual ends. The community is just the place where I can fulfill my personal goals and find my personal happiness. And in such a context, of course, individual rights, individual freedoms, liberties, they're the very most important things. The individual, the self, reigns supreme. Now, in a sense, that's just a side observation. I only make that observation in order to recognize the fact that it is going to be a particular challenge for us in our time, in our place, in our culture, to feel the full force of what Paul is saying here in verses 21 and 22. Not only have we gained entry into a community, not only have we obtained citizenship, but we are being built together into a collective reality, the temple of the living God. See, our identity in Christ is less about the individual and more about the corporate. Suddenly, my significance and my value are tied to who I am as part of this great building, the dwelling place of God by His Spirit. Now, that reality, it both humbles me and dignifies me at the very same time. It tells me that my individual concerns and boasts and identity markers, they are not the be-all or the end-all. What happens here within the family of God, it's not all about me. Now, that's humbling, and it goes against the grain of our culture. But at the same time, this truth tells me that I have the privilege of being part of something much bigger, something truly beautiful and wonderful and wholesome and good, One of our deepest needs as human beings is the need to belong, the need to be accepted, to have a home and find a place within a community. Our societies focus on the individual, on individual freedom and autonomy and so on. It has its merits and it has brought us its blessings. But we run the risk of isolating ourselves. I think we have isolated ourselves. And many in our communities are very, very alone. Perhaps that's your experience. Perhaps that's your reality today, and it's a painful one, and it's a hard one. It's dreadful to feel that. It's, it's awful to feel excluded and on the edge, excluded because of race or class or gender or nationality or education, to be the outsider. But at the heart of the Gospel is this invitation from our Creator to belong, to truly belong to His family, His nation, His new humanity, to be part of His great project to create a people for Himself. And within that new identity, we do have this immense privilege to be part of something truly great and worthwhile, to be part of the most glorious structure that's ever been built, to be integrally woven into God's plan to be part of the building in which he lives by his Holy Spirit. It's a breathtaking thought. What could be more dignified? What could be more worthwhile? What could be more special than that? Some here will be familiar with the name Helen Rosevere, a famous missionary to the Congo, who died a couple of years ago in 2016. Rosevere had a noted uh, ministry both on the field and then back home through writing and speaking when she was forced to leave the field. Her missionary career was sparked by an invitation given at a meeting of the Keswick Convention in England in 1946, where she was prompted to go forward and respond to God's particular call on her life. Now, I recently came across her description of that moment and how it felt just recently. She writes this, "'Unknown to me, I had been waiting for this moment. Every part of me tingled with fervent joy and happiness that I was allowed the privilege of responding.'" and that Christ was inviting me to serve him. Rosevere would suffer terribly on the field. You may know the story. She was taken captive by rebel fighters. She was beaten. She was dreadfully abused. Hers was an incredibly costly service. But as she reflected on her service and her sufferings for Christ, she said this, and I quote, one word became unbelievably clear, and that word was privilege privilege. Reflecting on the experience of costly service of the Lord Jesus, painful trial, awful suffering in the name of Christ, one word comes to mind, and one word defines the experience, privilege. As we're joined to this spiritual building that Jesus is constructing, it is true that our story becomes much less about ourselves, and it becomes altogether more about Him. We become, if you like, bricks in the wall, part of something much bigger than ourselves. But think of all the privilege attached to that. Think of the dignity. Verse 22, And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. Welcomed in, barriers brought down, sin cleansed, guilt removed, brought together to become a new humanity in Christ and then built up to be his temple, his holy dwelling in which God lives. That's who we are in Christ. That's our great privilege. That is our inestimable joy.
1: You're listening to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths, a message entitled One in Christ. It's part of a larger series called The Unsearchable Riches of Christ. Well, I have a question for you. How are you to live in these turbulent days? I mean, what does it look like to navigate all the crises that we're facing as followers of Jesus? Well, that's what Jonathan's addressing in a book entitled Living by Faith in Turbulent Times. It tackles these questions, taking us into the Bible's most famous passage on the nature of authentic faith, Hebrews chapter 11. And we'd love to send you a copy of this book as you give a gift of support to Encounter the Truth. You can give online at EncounterTheTruth.org or when you call us at 833-99-TRUTH. That's 833 833- Nine nine eight seventy eight eighty four. 7884 or again our website is encounterthetruth.org well thanks for listening today and I hope you'll join us next time